Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by James Mee of Waverton Investment Management. Now, James is a member of the multi-asset team, lead manager of the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund, on which we're going to be speaking shortly, and co-manager of the Waverton Real Assets Fund and Waverton Waverton Absolute Return Fund. He's also co-manager of the Waverton Protection Strategy, a member of the Asset Allocation Committee, and also a trustee on the Waverton Pension Fund. He graduated from Bristol University in 2012 with a degree in law and is a CFA charter holder. So first and foremost, very warm welcome to you, James, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. So the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund no doubt gives us something of a, a clue in the title, but perhaps if we could just kick off with your describing some of the objectives and maybe the style of the income fund. Yes, yeah, certainly. So, so the fund itself is a global multi-asset income fund, long-only strategy. What we're looking to do with the fund is really to maximise risk-adjusted return. Of course, any fund manager, I imagine, that comes on the podcast and speaks to you, Richard, will say something along the same lines. Most people say they're trying to maximise risk-adjusted return. So we try to be quite clear about how we want to do this in this fund. Uh, and we break out three key objectives. And this, these are the same objectives we've had since inception of the fund over five years ago now. The first is we want to grow the capital in line with or ahead of inflation. So it's an important thing to highlight in an income fund. We're not just taking a, a dividend yield or a coupon from the bonds. Uh, we're looking to grow the capital such that um, it's worth the same in 10, 20, 30 years time. So the real value of your money is maintained or hopefully advanced. The second key objective is we're looking to pay a consistent, sustainable level of income. What we say is we want to pay a reasonable level of income. So we don't target a specific yield and we're not looking to maximize income distributions. And that's important. We want dividends to be consistent such that the ultimate investor can rely on those payments, the quarterly dividend distribution that we pay. But sustainability is important. So we're not trying to maximize yield and therefore we're not reaching for that yield and taking excessive risk to do so. And similarly, if we target say 5% income, at certain points in time, you're going to be reaching and taking excessive risk, in our opinion, in order to achieve that, times like we're in today. And on other occasions, you know, 5% will probably be too low and you won't be taking enough risk in order to, to, to pay those dividend distributions. So consistency and sustainability are both very important to us on the income side. And then the third key objective is drawdown protection. So protecting the fund and protecting the capital um, in, in periods of acute market stress and Q1 2020 and Q4 2018 are two very good examples of, you know, the sort of stress that we're trying to protect. So given what you've said about uh, not necessarily having X percent in mind for an income yield, how, how are you finding it at the moment? Obviously, we're entering into something of a dividend drought. Uh, when it comes to UK equities in particular, of course. Has that made your job just that little bit harder? Yeah, it's a great question and, and, and actually enables me to highlight that because we are a global investor and because the UK represents proportionately small amount of the global equity market, something in the region of 6 or 7%, actually we don't suffer to the same extent as perhaps some of uh, the predominantly UK-focused funds might do, where you have a dividend drought, as you say. We, you know, inevitably, you come under some pressure as a dividend payer where you're relying on those dividends to, to come to fruition, particularly in a time like this, in particular in a time, you know, that we saw in the global financial crisis. 
we've looked in yeah. some detail, obviously, as you'd expect at the fund and, and, and ranked those dividends and those coupons that we expect are good at risk. And then we anticipate to be cut in terms of those that are good, 85, uh, 87% of the fund are good. We expect those to be paid out in full and only about one, one and a half percent are expected to be or have been cut. And that would include Shell, which is a proportionately small part of the fund at less than 0.5%, our smallest equity position, uh, and LVMH. Now, of course, neither of those were cut to zero. Shell was cut, I think, by two thirds and the LVMH was cut by 30%. But this, again, you know, it allows me to, to, to make that point about sustainability. It's very important that we're diversifying our capital base and therefore diversifying the income. Um, and so, yes, it's more difficult to find safe income, if you like, but because we're a multi-asset and globally diversified fund, we think we are to some extent protected and and, you know, we anticipate the yield, a reasonable yield to be 3.4, 3.5% on the portfolio. We've always said that we still expect that to be the case, even in today's environment. And historically, we paid out 3.8. So we benefited from a couple of special dividends, which were part of the investment case. So obviously, as a, a multi-asset uh, income fund, what, what is your sort of asset allocation? What, what assets are we talking about? Obviously, it's going to be including equities, but, but what, what what are the other constituents? As things stand today, we've got 48% in equity, 22% in bonds, 5% in cash, and 25% in alternatives. And alternatives is probably something that you know, we might regard ourselves as slightly set apart from the rest. And we, we break the alternatives universe down into two. One is the long-only return-seeking alternatives universe, and we call that real assets. So property, infrastructure, asset finance, commodities, and the like. Special spending we have in there as well. And the other is absolute return. So protect capital in periods of market stress, 12-month uh, positive return is what we're looking for from those. Oh, so that it, it's fairly diversified, uh, certainly by asset class. So presumably, and I think you alluded to this a bit earlier, uh, geographically as well. Very diversified by asset class, diversified geographically, principally across equities, but also within bonds and alternatives. So we have a, a fair amount in, in dollar and, and European assets or US and European assets. And actually, to that extent, it's important to highlight that we're well diversified in terms of currency as well. So we have just over 50 percent of the fund in sterling based currencies, courtesy of the assets that we own and also some foreign currency hedging back into sterling but 45 percent of the fund is in non-sterling assets so a well diversified fund for, from a currency perspective and, in, and and in fact that was one of the things that helped protect the fund in in q1 was an allocation to dollar and japanese assets as, as sterling weakened in terms of the fund itself could i ask uh, roughly how many lines of assets that we're talking about that, that make up the fund and perhaps you could just mention one or two of your top holdings while, while we're there as well, Jack. Yeah, certainly happy to. The, the fund itself has 55 individual positions across the asset classes I've already mentioned, across a number of different regions. Our largest equity position is Microsoft, has been for some time, and actually we've taken this the recent bout of volatility as an opportunity to add to the name. We think it's actually well positioned, was already well positioned for what was a structural trend in digitization and so the growth in, in technology and coronavirus and subsequent implications, we think it probably hastened a trend towards increased digitization. So, you know, it has a 90% share in the PC operating systems space. So that's Windows, which we all know. 
it's the largest manufacturer of business productivity software. So that's Office, which we all know and I'm sure are using uh, more and more, particularly as we work from home. And it's number two in the cloud space with Azure. So if you think about you know, some of the trends that have been hastened, particularly when you're talking about changing working practices, we think it's very well positioned to benefit from that. And to that extent, we've been adding to it, as I say, it's now 4% position within the fund. We've um, owned Amazon in the past. We sold it and we took the opportunity to buy back in again during this period of market volatility. And we think, again, it's another beneficiary of a transition in shopping practices, more people buying online than, than offline. And that transition from offline to online doesn't just speak to goods, uh, but also grocery. Now, while people are getting used to buying online, they may not be happy having things delivered in future. So we think actually there is some value to grocery logistics, if you like. And to that extent, the click and collect and having physical stores, we think Tesco will benefit from that. And we think we have another holding called supermarket income REIT, uh, which ought to benefit from that as well. One final one I'll mention is, is this transition to a cashless society. Again, a trend that was already very much underway, we think has been hastened somewhat. And while, you know, credit card businesses are probably going to have a very tough couple of quarters, if not 12 months. We think there is a structural trend uh, towards increased cashless payments. And so, you know, we've been adding to our position in Amex on a long-term view. And perhaps rather less um, concerns on the uh, potential credit impairments with the, uh, given the underlying typical client of an American Express holder. In in terms of um, uh, you, you've touched on it already. Um, obviously, we've had a, an extremely um, difficult first quarter for, for reasons that we're all uh, well versed with. How's uh, your fund been coping uh, given the current downturn? The fund actually performed quite well on a relative basis in Q1. So we were down just under 7%. Obviously, it's a long-only fund, so we're, we're very unlikely to be making money in periods of market stress. Uh, but down just under 7% compares to, I think, a global equity market down 16 17% in sterling terms. And so we protected well relative to the equity market and indeed against um, our peer group. There are a number of reasons for this and some of which we've already touched on. One, we, we did benefit from being invested in overseas assets and to the extent that sterling weakened, uh, the fund benefited from that because investing in overseas assets and in overseas currencies, you are essentially taking an active bet that sterling will fall. Um, so we did benefit from that. We've always been users of hedging in some form or another. We have historically owned a position called the Waverton Protection Strategy, which is an internally managed strategy by three people, myself included. And what we're looking to do there is be short equity risk and long volatility such that in periods of market stress like we've had, it, it will perform very well. So I think peak to trough in Q1, equity markets were down in excess of 30%. The protection strategy itself was up just under 150%, I believe. So alongside that, we also owned put options on, on European credit. And it was a position we took out early in January, January the 10th, concerned that the market was underappreciating the risk of coronavirus spreading and this is when it was just in Hubei province so it was a proportionately small part of the fund you know very large positive convex payoff and the the fund benefited from that hedging as well we carried duration in bonds so we had UK gilts 10-year US treasury we also have a position in the internal Waverton sterling bond fund uh, which is the best reflection of our internal fixed income views as a house uh, managed by my my colleague Jeff Keane who's performed extremely well and has a duration of eight or nine years itself. 
And the final thing, you know, I'd highlight for Q1 in particular is we actually reduced risk um, in February just before the teeth of the recent crisis in terms of the equity market drawdown. So we went into the drawdown with just 42% in equity, having come into February with in excess of 50% in equity. So cognizant of the risks, we took the opportunity to reduce the risk in a fund, sit it in cash, you know, to give us the liquidity to then start investing at, at more attractive levels. Given that what, what sounds like it's been a fairly successful strategy, um, that obviously leads to the, the proverbial $64,000 question, um, which is what, what's your outlook from here, from where we are now? Because obviously we know that certainly in terms of company reports, for example, uh, the second quarter uh, is likely to be worse uh, worse than the first, uh, and obviously the economic data that we're seeing in a number of developed uh, countries is, is also coming very much uh, on the wrong side. So, what what would your outlook be? Perhaps uh, certainly for the short term, but uh, perhaps even to the end of two thousand and twenty. Tough question. So I'll do my best. You know, it's interesting you mention company, you know, company reports and the economy, and and don't mention the virus. And I think that's actually quite prescient because. The market's actually caught between two competing narratives. One is the economic impact of lockdown. And the second yep. is the consequent policy response, fiscal and monetary. The virus, uh, you know, is one of the three factors at play without a doubt. And the focus on the virus has, of course, been to reduce our naught or the reinfection rate from three and a half down to sub one so that, you know, you're not seeing exponential growth in infections at a global level or indeed at a national level and you can you can ease some of the pressure on healthcare systems and to you know to many extents broadly that has been achieved you've seen cumulative case numbers flatten off and daily case growth um, reduced to a manageable level to, you know such that governments are now looking at opening their economies up again to some extent albeit likely in phases so as i say the competing narratives are actually the second and third of three factors at play, economic impact and policy response. The economic impact, you know, I think it's highly likely that we're in uh, a very steep, you know, economic contraction globally and at individual country levels. You're very likely to see the, the sharpest recession since the war, and probably the highest unemployment rate since the war as well, which of course will have potentially a deleterious effect on the underlying health of the economy. But of course, the consequence of that has been an extraordinary amount of policy response, both fiscal uh, and monetary. I make the point that this is policy response, it's not necessarily stimulus. So government fiscal uh, deficits are increasing, and it's, they're really there to replace demand and not to stimulate demand. So fiscal response is not a stimulative response, it's, it's, it's a disaster relief, if you like. Monetary policy and QE is potentially more stimulative but as things stand today, we're not convinced that it's having the same effect on the economy as the market seems to be. And the market's following something of a Pavlovian response, it, you know, and for good reason, since, since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, it's been the wrong trade to fight the Fed. And there is, as I say, a Pavlovian response to when liquidity is injected into the, the market and the world by risk assets. That seems to be what the economy, what the market is doing, rather, in anticipation of a V-shaped recovery. So we know it's caught between two narratives. The way we manage it in the fund, and this is where, you know, it's a huge benefit being a multi-asset fund, 
is we are carrying equity risk. So we went from a minimum, uh, or sorry, a low of 42% in equity earlier in this year. We're now up at 48% in equity. So we've been allocating, tentatively adding to some of those names I've mentioned that, that should be long-term beneficiaries of some of these structural tailwinds. But we're also at the same time adding hedging. So within alternatives, which I mentioned earlier was 25% of the fund, I think, historically, of that 25, the full 25 would have been in real assets. So long only return seeking type alternatives. Today of that 25, just 12% is in real assets and the remainder is in absolute return and hedging. So we are taking incrementally more risk aware of what the market is you know, looking at and focused on at the moment, which is this, in, this liquidity injection. But we're also hedging the tail risk and protecting capital to the extent that we can. Well, that's a fascinating insight uh, into what your strategy is in, in these extremely uh, difficult times. Unfortunately, we have ourselves run out of time, James. So I'll, I'll thank uh, James Mee once again, the lead manager of the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund. And indeed, thank you, the listener. And uh, do join us next time for the next instalment of the Interactive Investor 